This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. We're now talking to Professor Philippe Berger. Uh, he is uh, head of the Department for Economics at the University of the Free State. Uh, he is a Fulbright Scholar and a regular author and writer on economic issues in South Africa. He also uh, advises Treasury and uh, a lot of government departments in this area. So if there's a man who knows what's going to happen with the economy, it's going to be him. And that's why I'm excited to have him on the show. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Benji. It's great to be on your, on your program. <laughs> So, uh, Professor, I want to start off with uh, the issue of jobs, right? That really is something that South Africa uh, does pretty badly at, around the, uh, even comparing around the world. We've got very high rates of unemployment. Uh, I think they were sitting at about 30% before uh, the COVID hit, uh, and, and I can't see it getting any better, and it's something that you've tracked quite a lot of. So talk to us about the job situation in South Africa. What are we seeing out there? Benji, the job situation is quite dire. Um, as you rightly say, uh, you know, before the COVID crisis uh, started, we already had a jobs crisis, uh, an unemployment rate of almost 30%. And that is the official unemployment rate. Uh, if we look at the broad unemployment rate, that also includes those individuals who would like to work, but after trying to find a job, have given up on looking for a job. That rate already stood at 38% before the COVID crisis hit. So you can just imagine what, what, what will happen, you know, following, following the, the, the outbreak of the COVID crisis. Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we, we're seeing as well a lot of layoffs, a lot of, uh, you know, people who no longer can maintain businesses, uh, after COVID. Do we have any sense about what that looks like yet? Do we have any data that's going to show us exactly what the effect will be? Unfortunately, South, South Africa doesn't collect uh, as frequently data as the U.S. You know, in, in the U.S., for instance, you have jobless claims, those people who claim uh, sort of their f uh, version of the UIF, and they have that data on a weekly basis. We, we don't have that. Um, so what we have at the moment is anecdotal, and we'll have to wait for Stats Essay's quarterly labor force survey to come out. Uh, to cover the second uh, quarter of the year when the COVID crisis really hit us hard. And, and that will that will still be some time, given that we are still in the second quarter. Um, so, uh, but, but all indications so far are that, that it, it's, it's going to be pretty bad, uh, particularly in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, your, your small, uh, smaller types of, of uh, smaller medium enterprises, um, they will particularly be hit hard. You know, big companies very often still have a bit of a, a margin, uh, but your small companies don't have those margins uh, to work with. Uh, so in, in their case, it's not just, uh, you know, some of their workers that they lay off, but they might close in total, and then all of their workers will be unemployed. The one side of this equation is the, the job side of the equation. The other side is the growth. Uh, yeah. How much is the economy uh, generating um, uh, goods and services over a certain period? Uh, and that too was not great uh, before uh, before the COVID. We sort of dipped in and out of technical recessions and, and yes. basically negative kinds of growth. Uh, but I can't imagine that this will do anything uh, for that either. Do, do we have any sense about what growth might look like 
uh, well, in the, next, the, well, in the, the projections, uh, because the, because the nature of the crisis is is so new to us, you know. So so we can't just look at statistical analysis of the past and, and make a projection forward. Um, so it is a bit of uh, an intelligent guesswork, uh, but. I, I think it's safe to say that the effect will not be any less than a shrinkage of 5% in GDP and will probably be higher and could be much higher. So a lot of the more conservative estimates uh, are uh, a shrinkage in terms of GDP of between f- uh, 5 and 10%. So the economy becomes smaller by 5 or 10%, but there are also – uh, predictions that or forecasts that, that put it at as close as 15, 16, 17 percent. Um, so, so, so the, the, the forecasts are a bit all over the place, but that is simply because we don't know. Um, I think, uh, the, the sort of more conservative forecasts that you will see coming from the Reserve Bank or from the Treasury and so on, they will all put it in, 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 in the, in the area of about seven to eight percent. Um, so we'll have to see whether that, that is what, what happens. Uh, but that still is, is, is quite significant shrinkage, um, where we used to have a growth rate of, of, uh, you know, in the mid 2000s, we, we grew the economy by between three and five and a half percent per year. Uh, in the last 10 years, that, that fell. And as you rightly mentioned, we went into recession and dip in and out of these, uh, recessions, uh, with growth around about zero or 0.6 or minus 0.6 to, so to shrink by five percent or, uh, or, or even more 10 percent, you know, that, that is quite serious. Um, and, and I can link this also with, with jobs. So we've seen that since 2000, you know, if, if you look in general at the data, for every percentage point that the economy grew, uh, jobs grew by 0.8%. Um, so, uh, and that goes in both directions. So if the economy sh- shrunk, it, it shrunk by 0.8%. Eight uh, percent, the number of jobs, uh, except of course in 2009. And then what we saw there was that when the economy shrunk by one and a half percent, jobs shrunk by over five percent. Um, you know, so the in, in a crisis situation, we tend to drop or, or shed more jobs relative to the size with which the economy uh, shrinks. Professor Philippe Berger of the University of the Free State today about the economy and what is likely to come in uh, the next uh, the next while as uh, we work through the uh, car crash, I guess, of uh, the the COVID nineteen on the economy. If you want to ask any questions of the professor, um, you're more than welcome to. You can SMS us on three four five one nine, or you can telegram us on zero six one eight nine five. 1019. Now, Professor, one of the things that we've seen while is that uh, Tito Mboweni has had to adjust his budget. He, he produced a budget yes. in February, uh, which he normally would do for the whole year. Uh, and then, and then obviously this thing started to really bite in and around March. And so p- perhaps all of the, the assumptions that uh, Treasury Department was making around the budget no longer apply. And so uh, sometime either this week or next week, I believe, uh, Tito Mboweni, the Minister of Finance, is going to be doing a another budget. Now, the, yeah. one of the issues that you find is when there's less growth and less jobs and less economic activity, the the government doesn't have as much tax that it can collect, and and this was already beginning to be a problem for Mboweni 
in the in the previous budget, um, and so now he's likely to have even less room to play with. So I wonder if you can talk to us a bit about what are the kinds of things that, uh, if I'm a Treasury official, that I'm having to think about at the moment. Thank you, Benji. Yes. Um, so uh, that adjustment budget is uh, is up this Wednesday, the twenty fourth. So he will he will d- uh, deliver this. Um, so one of the well, well, there's a number of things. First of all, there's this so-called stimulus package of half a trillion rand that they announced. Now, not all of that is new spending. About two hundred billion of that is a credit guarantee scheme that works with the Reserve Bank, and that is not actually coming out of the budget. It is a scheme that works with the, where the Reserve Bank lends money to the banks and the banks lend money to small businesses, uh, you know, businesses smaller than 300 uh, million turnover in a year. Um, so, so that is the one part, but that still leaves 300 uh, more billion to, uh, to, to, as part of this budget. Now, 70 billion of that is tax deferments where they allow you to, to, you know, submit your taxes a bit later. It's almost like a tax holiday and, and, and things like that. But then there's also 130 billion that they reallocate. So that is expenditure that they budgeted for in February. And uh, now they decided they're not going to spend it on those particular items, but they're going to divert that to deal with the COVID crisis. So that would be direct expenditure on medical issues, uh, you know, preparing hospitals and, and, and so on. But also, you know, the funds uh, that they lend to small businesses. But that still leaves uh, a, a, about $170 billion that they spend more and new expenditure. Uh, so, so that, of course, that together with the taxes uh, that is going to be deferred and so on, that will put upward pressure on the budget deficit. The other thing that uh, because businesses don't operate so well in this time and some most businesses had to close for, particularly during the, the hard lockdown phase, um, you know, so a lot of people lost income, business income, salaries and so on. The, the one expectation or forecast is that tax collections by government will drop by about 285 billion rands. That's roughly a bit more than 5% of GDP. So all of these things will add up to a much larger budget deficit. So the, uh, before the crisis in February, the minister budgeted for a 6.8% budget deficit. Uh, now we're talking about possibly a 15% uh, budget deficit. Uh, percent of GDP. So, and, and that works, of course, in, in two things because, you know, budget deficit is percentage GDP. The, the, uh, that is which is above the line. The, the, the deficit itself goes up because of higher expenditure and lower taxation. But what is below the line, the GDP by which you divide it is, is shrinking by five or ten percent. So that, that helps to push up that ratio. Which means that our public debt, because the deficit is what is new debt every year, but public debt, which is the sum of all the deficits of the past, you know, so this, uh, all the extra debt uh, we make now, we add to that existing debt. That total debt to GDP ratio will probably jump uh, to from from 61% to almost 80% um, of GDP. So that is that is a huge huge jump, and uh, that means that you know you need to service that debt in 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 future. So you know that means that you will have to 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 use tax money to pay interest, etc. 
Now, some of that debt, uh, about 95 billion rands, we will probably be able to borrow from institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank. Now, that is still a loan, and you still have to repay it, and usually over, let's say, a five-year period. Uh, the benefit, though, is that they, they extend it to you at much lower interest rates. Um, so at least the interest cost on that uh, COVID-related uh, borrowing from these institutions uh, will will be a bit lower. But but nevertheless, in total, we're talking about government's interest bill jumping, you know, from where it was just three percent a few years ago, it, it it could easily go to to about six six seven percent of GDP. And 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 just to put that into perspective. That means that we will be spending as a government, uh, our government will be spending more on interest than it spends on health, almost as much or even more than it would spend on education. Um, to put that further into perspective, if, if your interest expenditure as a government is about 6% of GDP, compare it to the size of, let's say, the agricultural sector's output in one year, which is 2.5% of GDP. Or the whole construction sector is 4% of GDP. So what our government will be paying just an in interest, not in repaying the debt, just an in interest on the debt, will be more than almost the, the sum total of, of, of agriculture and construction as output together. So that, that's a huge amount of money. Now, Professor, I want to get back to that issue of uh, jet debt to GDP in a second, but uh, Michael has sent us a telegram and asked, what about the billions of rands that have been donated and the hundred millions uh, um, uh, uh, from Morgan Bank uh, that, that have been donated? You also mentioned this um, relief fund uh, and, uh, the, and, and the, the loan guarantees, and apparently there have been some complaints that the banks have not been uh, yeah, uh, yeah. lending as much as as possible. So, so like the solidarity fund, all of this kind of stuff, has it been effective? Do you think in helping people with this uh, crisis? Well, to, well, to some extent, yes. I think the the interesting thing is that the the, the applications these funds received for assistance uh, uh, outstripped the, the 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 amount of money available uh, to to a large large extent, and so. It helped, but relative to the total size of the economy, it's still small. So if you think about, uh, you know, the, uh, so, so what, what, for instance, the, some of the big families, the Ruperts or, or the Oppenheimers, so on, what they uh, donated, they, you know, between a billion and one and a half billion rands. That's a lot of money. But remember, our economy is five trillion rands. Um, you know, that is, that's 12, 12 zeros. <laughs> While, uh, what, what they donated is, is nine zeros, you know, is one and nine zeros. So, so, so it, it, it helped, but, uh, it still falls far short of what is needed. Now, talking about the big fund that, the, the loan guarantee fund, that was 200 billion rands. Um, and I was the first person to recommend the creation of this fund, uh, at the, at the end of March already, and, and then I argued uh, that it should be between five and ten percent of GDP. As it turned out, it's it's about um, about five percent is what they four percent is what they set aside or what they. But the take up thus far, I read last week is is uh, is only seven billion rands. Um, so they decided the two hundred billion they will 
make available a hundred billion of that uh, immediately. Uh, but so far, only seven billion has been taken up, and there are now calls to review uh, the the conditions on which they they extend these loans, and to see whether the banks are not too strict. Um, the banks are also not allowed to make any profit out of this, so you know maybe one should allow for slight amount of profit just to create an incentive for them to to, to do this. Uh, but the, in general, the the the, uh, the conditions on which these loans are are granted should be reviewed, and it should actually be done like in yesterday, because uh, you know the longer we wait, um, you know the, the more time passes, and we move beyond the point where we can save a lot of these these uh, smaller uh, smaller medium enterprises. Now let's talk. I want to go back to this issue of, of GDP. Like you were talking there about your your the, the amount of debt that the country owes, uh, and, and just tell me if I'm uh, I understood you correctly. But the amount of debt that the country owes versus how much we're actually producing in goods and services. You said that that it could go up to eighty percent. Is that correct? Am, am I understanding yes. you correctly? Yes. So that's what the government owes. Yes. I mean, is, is that not sort of the kind of levels that we were seeing perhaps in a place like Greece before before they had to go to the IMF or or there was all that sort of chaos around there? I mean, and, and is it a and is it a fair comparison to make? I think it's it's a fair comparison to make because we have a, a similar problem in 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 the sense that in, one of the problems in Greece was uh, you know civil service salaries that that ran away. And, and we've had that, uh, particularly in the period 2010 to 2012, our, our government salary bill expanded significantly. And, uh, the, the, the salary bill as such is, is, has become unsustainable and will need to be brought under control. Now, we know there's a lot of politics involved because the, 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 the labor unions uh, that, that deal with government, uh, you know, they of course don't like any cutback or, uh, any, uh, shrinkage in, in, in the salary bill. But, but at some point we will have to address this. Um, the, the other thing is also, you know, so, so sometimes people would say, yes, but look, now in the COVID crisis, a lot of countries have ex- actually extended much more assistance than South Africa has. And some countries, even like the U.S., might run a, a, a debt to GDP ratio of over 100 uh, percent. But the difference is that the interest rates in developed countries is significantly lower than interest rates on, on our debt. You know, government Bonds at the moment have interest rates like nine percent um, per annum, so that that is that is pretty significant and uh, much higher than than the interest rates that that you would see in in developed countries. That means that the interest bill of government will start to crowd out other expenditure on the budget. You know, so so the more you have. Uh, the more debt you incur, the more interest you you have to pay, and you know in the end it's tax money that will have to pay for that interest, and every rand that goes into interest is a rand that will not go into building a school or building a hospital. Um, so that is, I think, that is pretty serious. Now, what about government expenditure? I mean, we've, we've spoken so far about the, the fact that Tito Mawini has less taxes to play with, uh, and yeah. you're kind of alluding to our. Uh, a bill for um, salary, uh, bill, for, salary. for salary. 
right? But but the government is still having a discussion around SAA, and uh, I saw a figure the other day they want another twenty billion or something like that for SAA. The government likes to talk about NHI, which you know is is a multi multi billion project, the land reform. Yeah. All of this kind of stuff. So there's, the, the, the government does have a long wish list of, of spending things yes, that it yes. wants to spend. I mean, is, is any of that realistic in this situation? Uh, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> um, I think the, look, that they have, there's also, I mean, if, if you look at something like, like SAA, I mean, that, that's 26 billion of which 16 is just to, to repay debt. You know, so it's, it's literally a case of borrowing money to, 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 to pay your debtors. And, and as we know, that, that is usually the wrong way to go about it. Um, and, uh, and they, 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 now they talk about, you know, cutting about 80% of SAA staff, um, to, to make it more sustainable. But in the end, you know, it, it is a bit of a vanity project when, when, when you have all these other, uh, claims on the budget that are much more pressing. Um, so in a sense, um, if you really think about it, the, when we look at the just international air traffic, for instance, in and out of South Africa pre-COVID, um, there, there was already an oversupply of, of, of seats on, on flights. And so there's not a lack of competition. So it's not as if SAA is, uh, is going out of business that we won't be able to fly overseas. Uh, there's a lot of other options. Uh, domestically, too, um, you know, th- that, if, if SAA goes, that gap in the market will be filled with a private provider. There's no reason to think, oh dear, if SAA goes bust, how am I going to fly from Joburg to Cape Town? There will be private prov- providers and the market will become more competitive. I think all the assistance that government has given SAA over the last, what is it, 15 or 20 years, you know, has been to the disadvantage of a lot of private uh, airlines that 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 have gone out of business because of the unfair competition uh, that SAA is given. Uh, because SAA had all this assistance, and those private airlines did not have that assistance. Um, so it will be an equalizer in terms of the playing field, and and it might be much healthier for 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 the domestic airline industry. Uh, if, if SAA would not do that sort of unfair competition. Uh, that is the one point. And the other point, it takes an enormous amount of money, uh, money that should have gone uh, somewhere else. The opportunity cost of what we could have done with that money is, is so much more. But SAA is not the only case. As you know, there's, most of our state-owned enterprises are in serious trouble. The biggest one, of course, is, is, is ESCOM. Now, that one is a bit more difficult than, than SAA because uh, there's, there's not really an alternative. Um, but, but there, too, we need to think uh, about serious reform and doing so urgently and, uh, you know, and, and, and come up with a business model that pulls in, I believe, private sector money and expertise to, to actually run it and bring it on a on a sustainable business footing. We're talking today to Professor Philip Berger. He is from the University of the Free State. And uh, we're talking about the economy and some of the challenges that the economy is going to be facing as uh, we go forward um, in the country. Now, Professor, I think that some people that listen to my show may never listen again. Uh, after we've spent the last uh, 40 minutes or so <laughs> depressing them uh, about the state of the economy. So, so let's talk a little bit about, first of all, what are the things that uh, as, as South Africans 
uh, we have to do. And, and also, as as ordinary South Africans, you know, what can you be doing uh, to protect yourself, to protect your business, your family uh, in in a situation like this? Uh, Benji, I think the, the one needs to look at your cash flows at the moment uh, and protect the, your cash flows as a business. I think because at, at the moment what what happens is that you know you you are still liable to make your to, you know to service your debt, to pay your interest, to pay your uh, salaries as a business, um, and. and but, but on the other side, your income is not what it was before the crisis. So the, the first thing one needs to do is to, to protect those uh, cash flows because the moment you run into cash flow problems, uh, you know, those, those problems mount and in the end could cause solvency problems for your business. You know? and, and before you land up there, you need to, 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 to make a plan. And I, I would think that, you know, speak to your bank uh Plan your cash flows properly and, and, and work out some, some plan to do that, uh, to bridge this period until things sort of normalize again. Uh, I think that is, that is the one, one thing that one needs to do. And the, 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 the at, at the foundation of that would be, you know, cut all the unnecessary expenditure sort of right now, uh, to protect those cash flows. Now, what about as a country? Um, what do we need to do there? Policy-wise, I mean, uh, yeah. you know, other countries uh, they they are having to deal with similar things. They're looking at different options. What is it uh, that that we're able to do um, to actually stop, you know, try and kickstart the economy as it goes forward? Yes. So when when we talk about post-COVID uh, next year and the year after that, and and then move into the future. I think, you know, so I've, I've read the, 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 the recommendation by the president that it should be a state-late recovery. And, and, and I, I don't agree with that. I think we have had a big role of government in the economy in terms of state-owned enterprises, etc. And it has not delivered the growth we want. That doesn't mean the state doesn't have a role to play. The state must have a role to play in terms of the, the creating the environment in which uh, the economy can grow. But what we really need, uh, I believe, at the moment is a private sector-led growth. Now, if we really look forward, let's say, 10, 15 years ahead, and we look at the things that need to happen today, there's there's a number of things we need to look at. The first is that we need to recognize that in the next 15 years, about 12 to 14 million people will urbanize in South Africa. Now, so let's sink, let, let that sink in for a minute. 12 to 14 million people. If you think about the fact that there are basically 13, 14, 15 million people living in Gauteng at the moment. So that means that the amount of people that we will uh, uh, add to our urban areas is about the same number as already live in, in Gauteng. Now, that means that those people will need houses to stay in, they, they need businesses to work in, they will use consumer goods in their homes, they will need public transport, um, you know, they need all those types of things. They will need energy and electricity, they will need clean water. All of that means that there are actually a lot of opportunities, if we manage this well, um, to, to, to expand our urban areas, uh, in a, in a way that's human centric, you know, so the old apartheid models of 
you know, adding people on the peripheries of cities in far flung, uh, uh, townships. We need to go beyond that and, 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 and look at, uh, more integrated people centered cities. Uh, but all of that really creates a lot of opportunities. And if policy focuses on that, uh, and we also do this on a green energy basis, you know, looking at green energy to, 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 to for our electricity in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the power generation. We look at water uh, purification and desalination and, and all of that type of stuff. Uh, we look at green building methods that save energy so you don't need all of this electricity to cool them down in summer and heat them up in winter. All of those types of things. Uh, has the health potential of, of creating really big growth industries. And as I said uh, earlier, you know, for every percentage point that the economy grows, jobs growth, uh, grow with 0.8%. Uh, so there's, there's real opportunities, but we need to facilitate uh, and create an environment in which we allow the private sector to fill those industries uh, and create that growth and in the end to, to, to allow us to help these big cities to, 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 to grow bigger. Um, and it even help, uh, has as, as opportunities for, for, for agriculture. So even this, though this might be an urban-focused growth policy, you know, uh, all those people living in cities need to eat and we don't want to import all of that fruit. So we will have to look at, at, at the sustainable agriculture and food security and all that. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunities if we manage this well. So, so, but, yeah, okay, I hear you. I mean, you, as you say, there are a lot of opportunities, but there, it does still seem to be not a clarity of policy focus around, uh, around the government. I mean, you're talking about agriculture. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, whatever the, the sort of rights and wrongs of the specific issue are when when people are talking about land expropriation, for example, then yes, then yes. people don't invest in in in, in agriculture. And that, so, and that, are, yes. are we are we putting the right measures in place to help drive those uh, the, those ideas forward? No, we're not. So, so 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 we we need to really pivot on our policy approach. So, not look at a state led thing, but reform the uh, uh the legislation the processes the red tape all of all of those types of things to enable the private sector to do its job um so that means that on things like land or on things like the mining charters and and all of that we need to create certainty because the longer you have uncertainty the you know investors they just they just stay away they they don't need to invest their money here they can go to a, 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 a literally almost 200 other countries, you know. So, so, so there's a lot of opportunities in in the world today where companies go, can go, where where they don't have policy uncertainty and and where they can make their money. Um, so we really need to to address uh, that. And I think what is also required is that we need to find out for each sector of the economy. Uh, what is it that, that, that holds that sector back? 
And then we need sort of sectoral accords where the, where the, where the government goes to each sector of the economy. And the, now we have the public-private growth initiative where they do some of that, but we need much more of that. Where they go to the, to the, to those industries, ask the big players there, what is it that holds you back? Ask the small players, what is it that holds you back? And then reform those sectors, reform the regulations, reform uh, the, the legislation, the policies. You know, in, in agriculture, for instance, one of the big things that old, old farmers back is, is water rights. It takes you sometimes three years to get a water license. We need to change those types of things. Um, you know, th- th- what is, what is interesting is that, but, but tragic is that the, the manufacturing industry in South Africa was almost a quarter of our economy in the mid nineties. It is less than 13% today. South Africa's manufacturing sector is as big as Israel's manufacturing sector. But South Africa has 56, 57 million people. Israel is about 8 million people. So I think it's a real shame that, that a country that, that is, that is, that is significantly large in terms of population, um, has a manufacturing sector that is, is basically as big as, 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 as Israel's. And ours, in, con- in contrast to Israel's, you know, ours is a shrinking sector. Um, and, 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 you know, people are losing jobs. It is not a growing sector. So, and manufacturing does hold the possibility, but it needs to be the right types of manufacturing. We need to allow new industries. And for those new industries, we need to reform the legislation. We need to, um, uh, look at, at taxation, you know, for, for instance, the, in terms of manufacturing, um, if you look at the the, the sort of uh, uh, tax legislation, it's much less friendly uh, for for manufacturing than it is for for some of the other sectors in the economy. Professor, I want to ask you something completely not uh, uh, economically related because I understand that you have been reading uh, a, a biography of Ben Gurion uh, at the yes, moment, and I just wanted correct. to get your sense about uh, what you thought of the biography and what you thought of the man. Yes, well, um, it's called A State at Any Cost, uh, and it's written by Tom Zegev, um, so he's a, a well-known Israeli historian. Um, it's an excellent biography. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, a very interesting read. It's about 780 pages, um, so it will keep you busy for a while. Uh, but it's a very balanced book, so it, it really covers his life from birth to death, and you know the the, the period when he grew up in in Poland, you know the early years in uh, what was still the Ottoman Empire's Palestine, um, and and then as it goes into the British Mandate after the First World War, and how they worked towards creating, you know, uh, or pushing for the creation of 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 a, of a Jewish homeland, and then finally, of course, once uh, Israel uh, becomes uh, uh, an independent state, and him becoming the the, the prime minister for fifteen years. Uh, and, and then also the period after after his his retirement uh, f- uh, from politics, uh, and it, it it's it's uh, it's not a hagiography uh, which just presents to you you know the 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 strong points of the man. It 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 shows him as somebody who is a very determined person, at times very stubborn, um, but it also shows you you know the the singular drive that he has to create this homeland. Um, 
And uh, but it also shows the, the man's weakest spots, you know, and his his person uh, personality clashes with Chaim Weizmann, um, and and even his, his his marital problems, and you know, so it, it covers his private life, his public life, and and it's it also gives you a very good sense of of that period in in Israel's history, uh, and so I, I can really recommend uh, the book. Oh, well, that's fantastic, Professor. Perhaps uh, next time round, we're just going to have to uh, bring you on for some some book reviews and not just uh, talk th- about the economy. But uh, it's been a real, real pleasure, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today and just uh, enlightening us about uh, the economics uh, uh, in the country at the moment. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.